This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, December 1st of 2016, it's episode 100. In this episode, history and historical mystery, plus game systems and spiritual growth, our annual charity drive, a report on big fandom Greenville, reaching 100 episodes, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? Uh, well, I'm recovering from a cold that ruined Thanksgiving, but otherwise doing okay. Ugh. Everyone you was got sick. got so sick it ruined Thanksgiving? That really stinks. Everyone was sick. Two sick Ugh. kids. Sick wife, who had to cook two Thanksgiving dinners. She did some stuff for my side of the family, and then a lot of stuff for her side of the family. And I was sick, so I couldn't help out. It was real fun. My Thanksgiving was much more pleasant, but since yours sounds like it was miserable, let's just gloss over that and move on to our actual substantive stuff. All right. So uh, our topic tonight is talking about time in world building and history in world building. But we have something much more important to talk about, which is that this is Saving the Game episode 100. Yeah, we have been at this for... A very long time. Yep. And I hope you can hear the dramatic capitals in that sentence. I'm sure they can. Yeah. I am honestly surprised we've made it this long. I'm not terribly. No, I'm I'm surprised, honestly, that I got past, like, episode three and didn't just give it up. That's what I tend to do with new hobbies. But, I don't know. I guess once you get into a groove... Yeah, the the one little bit of self-horn tooting I'm going to allow here. You and I are both fairly dedicated individuals. This lasting was kind of a foregone conclusion, even if we didn't acknowledge it at the beginning. Uh, you don't know me that well, do you? Okay, I see how this I've is. I've known you for at least four years because I've been doing a podcast with you that long. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Your self-deprecating humor will not affect me, sir. Fair enough. <laughs> at any rate, this is episode 100, which feels really good. I, technically, it's probably like 105, 106, something like that, because we've got some bonus episodes. Yeah. But who's counting? Actually, I think it might be more closer to 110. I think um, we've got a bunch of bonus epises in there, and all of our annual New Year's resolutions ones fall into that category, too. So don't forget those in the numbering. And I suppose we have a couple of part one, part twos, but... Yeah. And we, we counted those as the same episode twice. But regardless, it's been really good. So... Before we get too caught up in going, wow, aren't we special for making this happen for four and a half years, I want to remind everyone that we cannot do this without you. We launched a Patreon this year. I'm not talking about the Patreon. There is no way we could have kept this up for four and a half years without listeners who care about the show. Yes, and interact with us and encourage us when we get discouraged and give us ideas and ask us questions and interact with us on social media and do all of the wonderful listener things that all of you wonderful listeners do for us that we really, truly appreciate. Yeah, you are all fantastic. We have been genuinely blessed to come to know many of you. We are excited to get to know more of you. There are plenty of you who listen and don't comment on our Facebook or Google Plus posts or, you know, tweet back at us when we post a new episode. Plenty of you who don't reach out to us in any way, shape, or form. And you're all fantastic. Even if we, I have no idea who you are. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. Peter and I are both absolutely blessed to have people like you listening to the show. Yeah, very much so. And some of you may have noticed that we changed something up right at the start of the show. And you'll hear it change up again at the end of the show. We 
decided, or I decided, really, that episode 100 was a good time to change up our intro and outro music, which I'm excited about. I think it'll be cool. Yeah. One other thing while we're talking about episode 100 stuff, I just want to take a moment and thank another group of people that have helped us out through the four and a half years that we've been doing this. And that's all the guest hosts that we've had. Well deserved. Yeah, we have we have had, frankly, some of the best, most interesting and nicest guest hosts I have heard on any podcast. And I listen to quite a few, even now that my podcast listening time has dropped below what it used to be i still listen to quite a few Mm -hmm. so if you are on and you are listening thank you so much for giving us your time and coming on and sharing with us 201 our guest hosts have been wonderful and we have very much enjoyed having all of you on yes there's not a single person that we have had on in a guest hosting capacity that we wouldn't want to have back on again so that's absolutely uh, true it's fantastic yep so a couple other things that we do want to talk about first and this is very important we have a annual tradition come the holidays of launching a charity drive for a cause we think is important. And the past few years have been the Bodana Group, and it's no different this year. Uh, it is up and running. If you go to razoo.com, you'll be able to search for this. But check the show notes, check our social media feed, check uh, our website, stgcast.org. You will see prominent links to our fundraiser for the Bodana Group. Now, if you don't know what the Bodana Group is... It is a group of people advocating for the use of tabletop role-playing games in clinical therapy for people who are suffering from mental health issues or who need therapy in some way, shape, or form or who you know want to kind of focus on personal advancement, that sort of thing. Basically, clinical and therapeutic role-playing. We have been big fans of them ever since we interviewed Jack Birkenstock back on episode 25, and... We've been raising money for them each holiday since then. Uh, Jack and the rest of the Bodana group also collaborates with us on the Game to Grow series of videos that we've been (laughs) helping out with. More accurately, we collaborate with them. They started it. We just get to participate. (laughs) Well, I suppose that's true. But we love these guys. They do fantastic work. And you may recall from last episode that Mike Perna is also directly involved with them as well. Mike's a longtime friend of the show in Rhodes Ministries, Game Store Profits, sort of our sister site in a lot of ways. I cannot encourage you enough to donate to them. There are a lot of deserving charities that ask for your money and donations come the holiday season, and all of them are good causes. This is one of those good causes that we think doesn't get enough attention and that we think makes an impact in an area that is very close to our hearts. Yeah, this is quite near and dear to us. We have long been proponents of the idea that, uh, Gaming can be beneficial beyond just the fact that it's a nice form of entertainment. And these people are not only helping to prove that, but they're trying to figure out ways of formalizing that and um, making the larger public aware of that. So that is something that we definitely want to support because not only is people getting help a worthy cause all on its own, but developing new tools that aren't unpleasant to have to use for the participants is a really valuable thing because it tends to make people less averse to getting help. The Bodana group and the people that they work with are doing that. So this is something that, you know, is, like Grant said, very near and dear to both of us. All right. Having said that, I do want to remind everyone that we have a Patreon as well. I'll be honest, if you decided that you wanted to not be a Patreon backer this month and wanted that money to go to the Bodana group this month instead, I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, I wouldn't kick and scream either. One thing I will say, though, is that we are changing up some of our Patreon rewards. And I've been talking about this the past couple of episodes. I need to just implement it. 
uh, and I'm hoping to do that over the holiday break because I need to like cut a new video and make some other changes, you know, just do some bookkeeping stuff. Naturally, the holidays are incredibly busy for everyone, for you, for us. It's how it goes. They're not nearly as busy for me this year. I'm not working in retail anymore. That's a very good thing come like November 15th through January 15th. Well, and not even retail. You're not working inventory management in retail, which is yeah. possibly worse. I mean, other than the fact that the poor folks have to deal with customers. Oh, no. I, yeah. I would much rather do what I had been doing at the end than what I was doing at the beginning. The rabid customers are much worse than stacks of boxes. Fair enough. At any rate. We are going to be changing up some Patreon stuff. First, we're going to be moving some reward tiers down so that they are more accessible, getting more people to ask us questions, uh, getting more people to be able to vote on episode topics, that sort of thing. We are doing two other things as well that I think are going to be really cool. First, we're going to be kicking off a Patreon-only podcast. And I think we're going to make this available to everyone who is a Patreon backer, regardless of the tier. This is going to be really short. It's going to be unedited because I don't have time to edit a second podcast, however short it is. Yeah, and I really don't want to take on a whole bunch of editing close to finals time. No, certainly not. And frankly, I think just a casual discussion is totally fine for this. Yeah, just a quick note on this. Uh, Grant and I are pretty formal with our Saving the Game episodes. This initial part where we kind of go through the intro is as loose as it gets. Almost everything else, and you know this if you're a Patreon backer, is covered in these very extensive outlines that we set up before the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. In fact, actually, that has become something of a running gag with us and the Inroads guys. Yeah. We do that because we tend to focus on a lot of heavier topics and we like to get into depth on things, so that works out well. However, Grant and I are also friends, and sometimes it would be nice if we could just sit down and have a little bit of a looser discussion on air without having to do all this prep. So this gives us an opportunity to do something that we've kind of wanted to do, too. Yeah. And we think it's something that our listeners would be interested in, and for a dollar a month, I think potentially useful because that money goes into making saving the game a better product for everyone, whether you're a backer or not. Incidentally, we actually have spent some of the Patreon money on re-upping our hosting. Beyond that, we are saving up to get Peter a new webcam and then possibly paying for some new art for public-facing stuff like our Facebook page and you know, Google Plus page, Twitter page, YouTube channel, you know, just like cover art or splash art. Yeah, we have kind of committed from the outset of the Patreon to taking whatever we get out of the Patreon and putting it back into the podcast yeah. because neither Grant nor I is independently wealthy. You know, I mean, we're both doing fine, but we're kind of very middle class and we have bills to pay and we can't just throw all kinds of money at the podcast like we would kind of like to sometimes. So this is a way of getting a little bit extra in the podcast coffers to do things like custom art, better equipment, that sort of thing. Right. But we also don't need the podcast to be financially successful in order to pay bills. So it, no, all that money goes into the podcast. At any yeah. rate, this Patreon only podcast, which we don't have a name for, we don't have any of that set up yet. It's going to be kind of random topics, you know, just what is something we would like to talk about? The, the one topic that I threw out there as something we might want to talk about is, if we could start saving the game over from episode one, what would we change? Very casual, what if kind of stuff. It might be, hey, I played this cool video game, let's talk about it. There's going to be a lot of Magic the Gathering talk, I can guarantee that. Yeah. <laughs> 
I played this neat uh, board game, you know, at a convention, or I watched this show that I like, or read a book, or... Yeah. I'm personally hoping to keep it no more than 15 minutes, just because I think that's a, a nice conversational length without turning it into a separate full, full-on podcast. Yeah, and I think knowing us, it's probably going to be closer to half an hour. Uh, we'll do our best. At any rate, that's <laughs> kind of what we're looking at. The other thing that we would like to start doing... I have a habit of saying, oh, this is something cool that our listeners would like to see. And if I don't post that right then on social media, it doesn't get posted because I am really bad about remembering to do stuff and I have relatively limited time to do it. Uh, So if it doesn't cross my radar during very limited time windows, it just doesn't get shared out to anybody who follows us on social media. And this is stuff that doesn't, that isn't appropriate to talk about during the show, but is stuff that people might be interested in if you are a listener of the show. Yeah, certain things like, uh, oh, what was that, um, like, Colony and Colonists RPG? Yeah. What was that, that called? I don't remember what it was called, but it was really cool. Yeah. And it, we can't really talk about it on the show because we have no experience with it, but it's something people would like. Um, I've got an article sitting on my work computer. I uh, hope my boss doesn't hear that one. Uh, but, you know, that I happened to see where it was talking about story building in Magic the Gathering, like during play. Interesting stuff that we can't really talk about on the show, but it's cool. So what we're kind of hoping to do, and I may turn this into a thing where like if we get up to a certain amount per month or a certain number of backers, regardless of what the amount is per month, we we start doing this, is do a, a post every week where we collect all this cool stuff and post it all at once, so that anything I see, even if I don't have time to post it then, gets shared out and Peter can start contributing to that because it all goes into one post and it's, hey, here's a dump of cool stuff we think you would like. I I will tell you that a lot of this is probably going to come from Grant. He ranges a little bit farther afield on the internet than I do. Yes. Also, I have a job where I am at my computer all day and sometimes I have a little time to casually browse the internet. Yeah, whereas... Mine is still working with computers, but I usually have the case open and my hands in the guts. Somewhat more difficult for you, yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to browse the uh, internet on something whose uh, processor is not actually in the socket. That's probably true. This would probably be something that was available to everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is absolutely going to be available to everyone. Yeah, this is going to be one of those things where it's like, hey, you know, we've reached a, a little bit of a threshold. We wanted to start adding some additional content yeah, it may fluctuate in size from week to week, but there should generally be something in there. Yeah, and this is something where it's going to be lower than our current next threshold of a hundred dollars. Last thing I want to talk about before we get into our main topic, I promised last episode that I would talk about Big Fandom Greenville. You did. Big Fandom Greenville, in case you missed last episode, is a multi-genre fandom convention that I heard about only a few days before it happened, a couple weeks ago. Went to it for a couple hours. Really only about an hour, to be entirely honest, because it was very small. Had some thoughts on it that I wanted to share with people. It's kind of interesting that we talked about this with Mike Perna, and that we were talking with Mike about putting on a convention or putting on an event and how to do that properly. This was a very ambitious first-year convention. Greenville is not enormous. It's sort of a sizable town. It's very nice for its size. Yeah. Greenville itself, though, is only about 64,000. The area, like the surrounding area, is about 400,000 people. 
you know, there's people here, but we're not enormous. We're not tiny, but we're not enormous. <laughs> to give you a sense of comparison, the entire county that I live in, the last time I checked, has about a quarter of a million people living in it. Right. So, given that, putting on a three-day convention in a set of hotel rooms that you have rented out was really very ambitious, I thought. Now, I have no idea how much hotel rooms cost to rent out, but I suspect they cost more than renting out, like, a local Elks Lodge or a community center space or that sort of thing, especially given that this was a relatively nice hotel that they rented out. They apparently needed about a 1,000 attendees to break even and only had about 600. Now, given that I didn't hear about this until about three or four days beforehand, that suggests that there may have been a marketing problem or that it was just ridiculously ambitious for that first year. And I'm kind of leaning towards the latter because there is a big geek community in Greenville, and I know there are more than 600 of them. I just think trying to get that over that much time was a difficult ask. Now, having said that, the con itself was pretty decent. There were a number of good cosplayers there, a couple of people who do it professionally, a lot of people who were doing it for fun, and just obviously doing it for fun, and they put a fair bit of effort into their costumes, I got some good pictures with them, and there weren't a ton of them, but they were really excited that this had happened. I think that's promising. The panels were numerous. They had two hotel rooms set aside for panels, and those seemed pretty packed when I was there. So that's pretty good as well. Yeah, that's fairly heartening all on its own. Yeah. They had a diverse number of topics that I thought was appropriate, and they had a long series of topics. Like, they went from, like, 10 to midnight or something like that. Yeesh. Lots and lots of topics. Now, some of these were also, like, movie screening and discussion stuff and that sort of thing, but those, those are perfectly fine panels. And a couple of them I really wanted to attend. Like, we couldn't stick around for the Studio Ghibli panel, but I would have really liked to. The dealer room was, I think, the highlight of the show. They had some really interesting dealers. Uh, one or two I recognized from Electric City Comic Con, but most of them were new to me. Uh, had some very good artists there. Uh, had a surprising amount of adult stuff, which was, eh, you know, I'm not a fan, but I understand that that appeals to some people, and when you're starting up a first-year convention and it's not explicitly kid-friendly the whole time, that's gonna happen. Yeah. And they were discreet about it. That's good, at least. But some really good artists, some good dealers, um, some interesting stuff. I picked up some Christmas gifts for people, and it was stuff that I could not have gotten or found any other way. So that's great. Met a couple of people, handed out some business cards. Uh, the gaming room was tragically small. It was two tables, one of which was running someone's Heartbreaker game that they, you know, were dead set on getting published, and that I honestly couldn't distinguish from a... Shadowrun 40k crossover. Uh, Listen, it appeals to some people, obviously. Yeah, no, definitely. It just, it, it's it's sad that that's all it was going on is more what that reaction yeah, was. Yeah, one of them was that, and then one was some crunchy game I didn't immediately recognize. I didn't spend much time in there because, honestly, not much was happening. The most engaging thing happening was someone's lunch. So, <laughs> I may have just hit it at the wrong time. If it happens again next year... Maybe I can step in and run a couple of one-shots of interesting indie RPGs or something like that. But 
We'll see. I know they they have started a GoFundMe to try and cover some of the costs, and they asked for a lot to make it happen again next year, so we'll kind of see how it goes. Regardless, I would say I'd give it like a, a 6 out of 10. It's promising. I think it could grow into something. I think there are maybe some... I'm going to say management issues, but that's actually sounding too harsh. I think they wanted it to be bigger than it could be the first year. A little more ambitious than they were realistically able to pull off, huh? Yeah. And ambition is great, but I think to make it successful and happen year after year, there's got to be some realism. I would love to see it grow into something. People were really excited that it was there. They were really excited that it happened. And that's going to drive it to continue in one form or another. So I'm hoping it'll stick around. I'm hoping it will happen again next year and will continue to grow. If it can get some momentum, I think it will turn into something cool. We'll see what happens. Well, should we get into our scripture and our uh, main topic here? Well, we have a Patreon question to address first, don't we? Ah, yes, we do. So this question comes from Jared. What game systems that you have played have felt the most compatible with spiritual growth? And what game systems have you played that have felt the least compatible with spiritual growth. Peter, do you want to take this one first? Okay, so interestingly enough, I think the uh, the one that I found the most compatible with uh, spiritual growth was um, Savage Worlds, but I think that was mostly what we were doing in it. And it it probably is a little strange to focus on a campaign that was about a bunch of criminals running around uh, pulling jobs for shadowy corporations in a dystopian future as something that coincides with spiritual growth, but those characters really kind of brought out the best in each other and tried to do things that, despite the fact that a consciously religious aspect was not part of any of their character concepts, really kind of did some redemptive stuff in the world. And That's fair. I just, uh, you know, that the thing that is making me hesitate is that's not really the system, though. That was the story we were telling with it. That's that's true. Tell you what, here's my answer on this. All right. For most compatible with spiritual growth, my answer is dread. Okay. I'm sure that's going to sound weird because dread is, first of all, barely a system. <laughs> uh, it's pull blocks from a Jenga tower until it falls and something terrible happens to your character. Right. But... The tension that that creates at the table and the way that character creation is done, where it's you have this questionnaire and you build these very thoughtful characters, and then those characters come into play as people rather than a collection of stats. And that opened up a lot of room for spiritual growth uh, because it didn't get in the way. And I think horror games in particular are good for this because you're dealing with terrible things. To quote C.S. Lewis... I think we quoted this a couple episodes ago, if I'm not mistaken. Courage is simply every other virtue at its testing point. I'm paraphrasing, not quoting, but yeah. there you go. And that's from the screw tape letters, I believe. I think you get that in a game like Dread, where it's okay, something terrible is happening. Can I still be a good person in that situation? Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, boy, as far as least compatible, I have one there as well. I think I have one, too, but I can't remember the name. <laughs> uh, for me, it's going to be Rogue Trader. Yeah. You know what? I, it doesn't even matter that I can't remember the, the name of the other one because that's clearly the answer for me, too. Yeah. That game encourages you to be less than you already are. Yes. To say nothing of what your characters wind up doing. Yeah. For those who don't know, this is a Warhammer 40k RPG. Uh, and honestly, I think Rogue Trader 
of all the other 40k RPGs that Fantasy Flight put out, offers the most potential for spiritual growth, which is pretty sad. Yeah. So that one definitely is my least compatible, because the system, as well as the setting, both conspire to make you a terrible person for no other reason than Grimdark. Yeah, I mean, what could you do in that universe that was somewhat redemptive? I Play a Grey Knight, maybe be like a member of a Tau medical team that goes into plague worlds and tries to offer treatment and succor to people? I mean... Get on a ship and never come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and even the never coming back thing is going to be problematic because you're going to go through the warp. Yeah, so not much, not much there. I think maybe my Tau medical thing is the closest you can get, and that's not addressed in anything. That's no, something it's... that I extrapolated. Yeah. So, good question. Systems compatible with spiritual growth is uh, it's a tricky one. Yeah. All right. So if you want to ask a question, just back us on Patreon, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it right now. If you back us on Patreon at all, you can send us a question. I don't care how much you pledge, you can do it. Yep, we have decided to drop that down to the RUA backer tier, so... Exactly. So have fun with that, and we look forward to questions that are not necessarily saving the game related. If you have just an interesting question, like, what do you put on your hot dogs? I'm fine with that, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, let's move on. Why don't you take Daniel? Ah, okay. So this is Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. And this is Second Peter 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And finally we have John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So tonight's topic is, well, it, it's about time and history and world building, and it grew out of a world building problem I had really at the very start of the D&D &D game that we have been running, or unfortunately over the past couple of weeks not running, but that's yeah, the holidays mostly for to illness. <laughs> yeah, but it's still ongoing and will absolutely pick back up. Yeah. Here's the problem I had. I'm running this game as a colonization game, where the characters are part of a colony setting up in a different part of the world that they really know nothing about. They did not think it was inhabited. Certainly there were none of the standard D&D &D races there. They have discovered, in the meantime, that it is inhabited, but by other things, and that things are much more complicated than they had first expected. And, you know, this setting was great, I thought, because it opened up the possibility of discovering places and people and cool things, all of which was backed by a history that I was hoping would feel authentic to some degree. Everything was somewhat natural, right? It's not, here's the snow lands on one side of the river and magma lands on the other side of the river, because magic. None of that, right? It, it's somewhat naturalistic. That only works if you're playing, oh, I don't know, Diablo or something. <laughs> or Greyhawk, let's be honest. Yeah. But what I discovered is that this is incredibly hard because historical mysteries are extremely difficult in a setting like D&D &D, or really any, well, most fantasy settings where there's a dramatic disparity 
in lifespans between characters. It's very hard to have a mythic history when, let's say it's 2,000 years. Well, that's a really long time. That's two elf generations. Yeah, three if you're being generous, because they live, according to the book, average lifespan is 700 years instead of 70. That's 10 times longer than the average human lifespan today. Well, and that's assuming you use the 700-year-old elf version as opposed to the truly immortal ones that live until they're killed. Right. And I'm not, because these are D&D elves. Right. Right. And this is explicitly 5th edition. So the problem is, if I want to have historical mysteries, well, can I not have elves at all? Or do I have to have some other fix? How do you do this? Uh, And dwarves are not much better, right? Yeah, they live about, what, 400 years or so? Yeah, something like that. So you have this real problem. And I worked around it in a couple of ways, and we're going to talk about those, but that was the problem that I initially had, and I had to talk with my wife about it, which is a little awkward because she was in the game, or is in the game as a, a player, but made that work. So I wanted to bring that up, in part because it's been on my mind a little bit, and in part because time seemed like a good thing to talk about on episode 100. Yeah. And because I think it does have a lot of world-building implications. How do you have history in a setting that isn't just Earth again? Yeah, so specifically, how do you have historical mysteries in a setting like well, this, that, right? Well, that's where we want to start, I think. But really, yeah. when we're creating a history, what do we have to think about? And is it important to have that kind of history? All right, well, let's start with the mysterious aspect because, well, frankly, that's the first thing we've got in our outline, and it seems as good a place to start as any. Yeah. So one of the options is you don't have historical mysteries. If you have a a setting with very long-lived beings and very good information technology, it's conceivable, especially if if that society has existed for a very long time, that there is literally no relevant history that isn't recorded anymore and that you have the ability to access it at your fingertips. Some space opera settings are pretty much like that. That can be interesting in some ways. It's a little hard for somebody in even the modern world to wrap their brain around, because for all of the stuff that we have access to, and as awesome as the internet is and search engines are and archival storage is, we're not quite to that point yet, where perfect information about everything is just a thought away. Right. So... There are ways of dealing with having long-lived species of some kind that still allows some room for some historical mystery and ambiguity. So, Right, and I want to stress, this is not just about long-lived species. This is really about creating historical mystery and creating a history that can be something you play with in-game. Yeah, just because uh, there are people alive now who are alive then doesn't mean that they're still in whatever physical location the campaign is taking place when it happens. One of the examples is uh, Tolkien's elves going across the sea at the end of Lord of the Rings. Well, if 10 years after the conclusion of that, somebody wants to talk to one of those, they're kind of out of luck. They are across the ocean. They're gone. They're somewhere else. Just because somebody has that knowledge doesn't mean that you have access to them. Another consideration kind of branching off of that is just because there are records doesn't mean that you automatically have them at your fingertips. If you have to sift through a 200,000 square foot library for a single relevant page, you are going to be there for a very long time. Even if you have somebody who knows the library really well, and even if it has an extremely good card catalog, and even if you've got several people helping you, you are still going to be there for a very long time. 
Now, the other possibility is that just because there are people who, who remember an event that's relevant to your history that you want to explore doesn't mean that they necessarily are talking. They may simply be unavailable in some other way, or they just don't want to talk about it. Yeah, if, if the event was a crime or a covert operation or embarrassing or shameful to the participants or something that has such a high degree of reverence that they don't feel that they can speak about it, they might be there, but that information's not going to be readily available, at least not from primary sources. Uh, likewise, they may just not like you. Yeah. If the villain knows something really important about the history of the setting, chances are they're not going to be very forthcoming. They're going to be disinclined to share that information with you unless they can use it to manipulate you in some way. Yep. And, you know, people just may not tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, the other possibility is that they simply don't remember. I don't remember a lot of things, and I've been alive. Yeah, the, so there's an interesting thing that you can do sometimes if you, um, if you kind of doubt the veracity of this is get together with some other people that were at an event that happened in your life that was pivotal and that you enjoyed and that they enjoyed too and start talking about it. Chances are, and since this is a natural thing that people tend to do is sit around and reminisce with their friends, you're going to remember different things about that event. And at some point in the conversation, somebody's going to bring up something that you have no recollection of. Yep. And that was something that you enjoyed. And we humans only live about 80 years on average in the first world where we have good medical care. Yep. Just because something is significant now doesn't mean people thought it was significant when it happened. Yeah. They may simply not have paid attention to it. And now you're trying to figure out what happened without anybody having cared. Likewise, somebody who knows a thing may not be able to contextualize that knowledge properly. To go back to fantasy, for example, an ancient lich who's been working on a magical problem may know something that happened 8,000 years ago, but he has no idea why that's useful, why it's relevant, or what it relates to. And he probably won't care. You might be able to make him care, but he will not start out caring. Yep. And then the last thing that we've got here is that going back to what we said about how people have different recollections of things, beings with vast memories may have some trouble placing certain events in time. Uh, if you've been alive for 400 years, whether the battle occurred 87 years ago or it's the one that happened 153 years ago, but happened in some of the same places and that you fought in both of. And did this happen in the first battle or the second battle? Was that when was that? That can be a problem if you need to know exactly when or how something happened. Oh, yeah. The classic AI whose databanks have been corrupted. Yeah, they they no longer have timestamps on their files. That's that's bad. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is not just a fantasy thing. This is something that happens in any media where a historical mystery is relevant. Now, none of this necessarily means the GM doesn't have all this figured out. Certainly, I have a lot of it figured out for our D&D game. But, Peter, you guys have no idea what's going on, do you? Not yet. Uh, the other thing that I should add as a caveat to that is that just because the GM could have this all figured out does not mean that the GM has to have this all figured out in order to start playing the game. Here's a hint. I didn't. Yeah. I don't think I had the full set history of the setting that I ran a very successful campaign in figured out at any point in that campaign. In fact, actually, I know I didn't because I filled in different parts of it as we went along with stuff that would be appropriate to the narrative. Which I think is very valuable. I've been doing some of that in our game as I get to know the characters better and determine what is relevant to the game. This is actually one of the reasons why I like creating my own setting for stuff is because the ability to 
add useful historical information on the fly instead of having to go with kind of a set in stone timeline that was come up with by somebody else really opens up a lot of useful narrative options to a GM. Obviously, not everybody GMs the same way that I do, and that's fine. But if you do like to be able to kind of do things a little more fast and loose, well, you know, maybe don't feel quite so obligated to come up with your entire fantasy setting or sci-fi settings, ancient history all at once while you're planning a campaign. And so the thing is, if you are creating a setting where history matters in some way, or creating a game where history matters in some way might be the better way to phrase this, because some games don't need history. If I'm sitting down to run a con game, I don't know, some crazy one-off where we're just being ridiculous, history doesn't matter. I don't have to sit here and and work out what's happened to get us to this point. It's, here's a crazy sitcom-like situation, let's goof off for four hours in character. Totally fine. But if you're running a, a more or less serious campaign where history has had an impact on the world, there are a number of things that I think you do need to think about to some degree. One one of the other things that's kind of interesting to think about in this particular context is uh, even if you do have some history set out in advance, you can keep widening the cast as you go on. Let's look at World War II because that's a common frame of reference that everybody knows. At least I would assume everybody listening to this podcast knows. So you can start off with, okay, you know, these are the leaders of the great powers. You've got Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you've got Winston Churchill, you've got Adolf Hitler, you've got Joseph Stalin. Well, as you progress through the campaign, you can start out knowing what those four guys did, and then you can start moving down to generals that they had. So you can start learning about Rommel and Eisenhower and Patton. And then you can start moving down to, you know, lower ranking people or people who were part of the civilian government or that sort of thing until you get to the point where you've got this rich tapestry that has emerged organically in play and you only started out knowing the names of the key players. Yeah, so let's talk about the things that you do need to look at. The first thing that I think you need to give consideration to is historical progress. Does this setting progress at all? Uh, And I don't just mean do pieces shuffle around, right? Do borders change without any real effect? Does stuff happen without meaningful change in your setting? There are settings like this. Many fantasy games are like this to a large degree. People have been using swords and sorcery for three, four, five, six, ten thousand years, and it's not going to change anytime soon. There's no technological advancement. There's no social advancement. The map stays relatively the same. Oh, the map could change however it wants. But a lot of the time it doesn't. I mean... Well, right. But I'm saying the ma- even if the map changes, fundamentally the human condition stays the same. Yeah, definitely. There are other settings where progress happens, and progress is very relevant. Shadowrun has this wonderful timeline that starts off every core book. It's a clear timeline, in a wonderful narrative form in most cases, that says, this is how we got to where we are now from the world you recognize. Yeah. And it's great, because it walks you through these changes. Some of them are very radical, some of them are very fantastical. Some should have already happened by now because, you know, we've moved on. History progresses whether book authors like it or not. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's gone from a potential future to an alternate timeline at this point. It really has. Due to how long Shadowrun has existed as a thing. Yep. But every step of the way is how we get to this world, this cyberpunk universe with fantasy that we imagine, 
and the consequences of those changes and what that means for your characters right now and what opportunities those offer to players and GMs right now. That timeline is full of plot hooks that are still unresolved. It's great. Um, the, the next thing is historical density. And again, Shadowrun covers, like the current ones, what, 70 years, I think, right? Something like that. Something yeah. like that. It's an incredibly dense timeline. Lots of stuff happens in this very tight period of time. There are other settings where very long stretches of time can occur without any significant change. Yeah. Both are fine. Fantasy games, I think partially because of the uh, the problem of long-lived species and the problem of fantasy wants to kind of be static, it wants to be about the past. Ch if it does change, it changes over a very slow, long time frame. And that's okay. It means that you have more things happening and more pieces shuffling around in those time windows between significant changes to the setting. Yeah, and that... That works very, it almost sounds like we're being a little derogatory of this, but we're not. That's that's something that's very useful for the kinds of stories that fantasy wants to tell. Yeah. If you don't want to tell fantasy style stories, though, then you need to start looking at a more dense and, well, frankly, dramatic history where a lot of things about daily life do change. Right. And uh, we're talking about epic fantasy in this case. You know, fantasy yeah. is certainly more than that. Now, if you're creating that and you want to flesh it out and you don't have to, Right, You can just flesh it out as you go, you can just focus on important things, etc., etc. But if you want to, the bigger your time frame is, the more your cast of influential people may expand. Maybe not necessarily will, but may. The thing about density is you have more and more actors. However dense it is, you're going to have to have people to make these changes happen. Geographic scope also matters. This really just sort of changes what you're creating, not so much the amount of history you have to think about. But if this is a story of a whole world, you're going to be writing at a very high level. Whereas if it's the story of just one country or even one small town, you're going to be writing on a much more individual level. Absolutely. But the supersetting and the subsettings within that may also have histories of their own that are relevant that you need to at least give a little thought to. If this is a country that we're writing about, well, the larger geopolitical history does matter, and things that happen in individual cities matter. If you're writing that small town, well, the history of a single family within it may be very important. And, you know, you could turn a house into its own subsetting in that case. So that's something you need to give a little thought to, and it's going to be what you focus on and what outside influences affect it and, you know, what you need to drill down in on. Yeah, so another consideration that you have to think of is historical knowledge. Uh, how much do the inhabitants of a setting know their own history? Uh, how much could they know if they tried? Because, you know, in the modern world, neither you nor I knows as much as a professional historian. We just don't. We have other things that we do for a living. That is not our job. Right. And also, what makes that knowledge possible or impossible? Uh, you've got three different examples in here, and I think this is kind of interesting. You've got modern day games. And I think our listeners, especially after having listened to this portion of the episode, have a pretty good sense of what we're talking about for how much you can know about modern history. You yeah. know, we've got information technologies, we've got salvaged relics, that sort of thing. We have, you know, an Ask Historians subreddit. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's not hard to get information about history. At least not. it gets easier the more current it is. Uh, sure. If you really want to know about the Achaemenid Persian Empire, the details get a lot more sparse. 
fascinating, but sparse. Right. But we have access to that information. Yeah, it's fairly extensive. The next example you have on here is Numenera. Right. Numenera, for those who don't know, it's science fantasy. You know, Earth is a billion years old, and there have been these nine great civilizations that have risen and fallen and reached this, this technological ascendancy and then collapsed again. And so you just have basically magic artifacts, except they're technical. Yeah. To give you another idea, the this one billion years hence setting, all the continents have merged back into another Pangaea. So this is a very long ways in the future in this setting. Right. But point is, this is a setting where it is impossible to know everything about history because there's a billion years of incredibly complicated history to cover. A lot of it has disintegrated. Well, that's the other thing. A lot of it is lost. But even if you had access to all of it, it's just too much information. Yeah, you'd never be able to parse it all. You you wouldn't be able to learn it all, much less be able to make any kind of sense out of right. it. But you also have the issue of just enormous swaths of history have been lost. And a lot of that factors into the game directly. Here's this crazy construct. What does it do? What are we dealing with this time? Does anybody know anything about it? So on and so forth. Yeah, one of the most telling things that kind of illustrates this is the setting is called the Ninth World. There's a little bit known about the Eighth, Seventh, and Sixth Worlds, and then apparently there were five before that, and pretty much nothing is known about any of them. And we're not even sure which one of those is supposed to be our current world. The other one here is the 40K universe, the Warhammer 40K universe. Ah, yes. And Old we, Grimdark, we mention you again. <laughs> right, and I mention this in part because, again, there's a lot of knowledge that's lost, and that's relevant, but also mm-hmm. because learning things about history is actively discouraged in the 40K universe. Yeah, and can actually get you killed. Right, and part of that is because much of it is actually dangerous, And part of it is basically as control. If you learn about things, well, then you might start thinking about things other than hating our enemies. Again, it's a terrible setting full of terrible people. But that's another case where there's a government and social policy of nobody gets to learn about history. History is locked down, and only a select few have access to those archives. And there are other interfering problems, communication issues, and the process of recording history and the distrust of artificial intelligence and that sort of thing. And there is some of the element of things have just been lost, like you see in Numenera. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, there's (laughs) 40,000 years of history. A great deal of it has been lost, blown up, burned on purpose, etc. The other aspect of this is how much known history you have in your setting depends a great deal on when certain technologies were invented. We know very little about the Achaemenid Persian Empire, Because data storage technology, like writing on things that lasted a long period of time, really wasn't invented at a period of time when that was convenient. And when it was, people didn't use it for recording everything. Because it was expensive at the time. Yeah. I mean, one of the... Okay, very quick aside here. One of the things that we take for granted in the modern world is just how cheap things like paper and hard drives are. Yeah. Hasn't always been the case. Anyway, continue. Well, no, it's a good point. Paper is incredibly expensive to manufacture in pre-industrial societies. Nobody has even thought of hard drives. Right, obviously. Carving things or casting things is expensive and time-consuming and generally is not called for or necessary in most cases. Because most of your society isn't even literate. It's right. It's not literate and you don't need it for most things. 
retaining data is difficult. Peter's a big fan of saying, well, you know, we have these modern information technologies, they'll last a long time. Hard drives fail a lot. Do you know they how do. much data I have lost over the course of this podcast? Oh, I okay. As <laughs> somebody who works for a company that recycles computer equipment, I know about hard drive failure. Yeah. In fact, I, I actually had to go do some help desk work for a, a customer of ours in the same business park that had one, I think, about two or three weeks ago. Uh, the thing that, that's nice about hard drives is, uh, I don't want to make this into the IT podcast, but there are redundant ways of storing things. So if individual hard drives fail, as long as they keep getting replaced, you won't lose any of the data that's on there. Those are expensive and they tend to be used in data centers. I'll tell you right now, we've had to rebuild whole RAID configurations. We've had to talk to customers and say, you know, I really wish you had thought to back up your mission critical data. That would have made this a lot easier. Yeah, or indeed even possible. We kind of look at that and think, oh, well, we'll never lose anything important. That's really not true. We've lost a lot, even just over the past 20 years. We want to say, oh, the internet saves everything. It saves a lot. It saves more, certainly, than we used to be able to save. But it's not everything. And let's not think that 25 years is really a relevant amount of time to measure historical retention. Yeah. It's also worth thinking about what do people care enough to keep track of? We, I, we talked about this a little bit with, you know, the Achaemenid Persian Empire example. Do farmers care very much about keeping records of the births and deaths of kings in other countries? Nope. Nope. Does another nation care about keeping that information? Maybe, but... Mm, yeah, if it's useful to them, but... Yeah, but if they're not dealing with them, maybe not, or they're not going to track it very carefully. Probably only if the if the nation in question is an ally or an enemy to the second nation in question. Right. So if it's not directly relevant, there may be information that's lost or information that kind of goes through the telephone game process of being warped and distorted. The actual events shape the history you're designing, but the ability to discover stuff or have that information readily available may simply have been lost as a result. The last thing I want to talk about is historical reliability. It's not just, do we have access to facts, but also, are people writing things down or recording things that are believable? Yeah, to go back to the Achaemenid Persian Empire example, one of the sources that gets used for that a lot is the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. One of the th problems that you'll realize that Herodotus has is that he tends to inflate a lot of numbers. He'll talk about there being, you know, millions of people in this particular battle or something, well, the archaeological record indicates that there weren't that many people living in that entire part of the world at that time, much less able-bodied people who were part of one army or the other. Yeah. People may ascribe things to mythic causes when, in fact, it's something perfectly mundane. They may say, oh, well, there's no way that incredible thing could have happened. I'm going to ascribe it to some perfectly mundane cause because I refuse to believe that something supernatural may have happened. Yep. The reliability of the record is not as good as we think. And so a historical record, and again, I'm, I'm thinking of a historical mystery game, but any setting where history matters should have some of this. The historical record may contain clues as to what happened, but it may not be able to be taken word for word. I kind of did this to a certain degree in the, the last session that we played of the D&D game, where I gave you guys journals. Oh, okay. The guy who's writing these journals is not a good person. 
he has his own biases, and he's getting incomplete information. Plus, he's also completely arrogant and uh, a little bit crazy. Not a good person, right? No. Um, <laughs> and so you guys have a window into this period of time. And because this is a crazy dude who's doing a lot of arcane stuff to keep himself alive for far longer than he should, you know, you get some coverage of time, but you don't know exactly what time period that covers, and you don't really know what has been going on outside of these little tiny glimpses that he's writing down of the little tiny glimpses he's getting of the world outside his extra-dimensional retreat that he created. You know, he's in essentially a nuclear shelter. Yeah. <laughs> and every once in a while, a survivor wanders in, and he kind of takes notes on what they say is going on. And that's all the information he's got, and you're getting a fraction of that through a biased person writing all this down. Yeah, and a and an insane beholder who knows even less than he does. Well, he was just there to make sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's relevant information. And it's information that is valuable and hints at some stuff coming up in the game and what has shaped the world. There's more in there than I think you know about, you know, the Kenku and some of the other animal humanoid species. But that's kind of background information and it explains what has happened to the setting, but it's also foreshadowing. Okay. It's also not necessarily reliable. Yeah, because it's, it's from such a limited perspective. It's so old, and it's so slanted. Right, but there's enough truth in there for you to kind of go, oh, okay, I get a general idea of what's going on. Maybe the details aren't super important. <laughs> I know just enough to be concerned. Lovely. Right, and then, you know, <laughs> a name or two and a little bit of what's going on is enough to get by in a D&D game. Yeah. I threw that in there because I had finally figured out some of the history in the setting. What, like 10 sessions in or whatever. You know, something that's kind of interesting about that, since you, you mentioned, you know, you kind of figured out some of the history 10 sessions in, it didn't, it wasn't even relevant until that point. Yeah. Up until this point, it was like, okay, you know, that's that's wonderful. There were ancient empires here. Um, do we have enough fish to keep everybody from having sore bellies and, you know, complaining about how they're starving? Yeah. Uh, how about shelter? Because those look like storm clouds, and I'd really rather not sleep out in the rain. And know? that's a huge advantage of a role-playing game as opposed to, say, a novel. You yeah. can start off just by throwing the characters into stuff and use that time to figure out history and let play shape the history that you create. Then let that history come back and affect other parts of the setting or explain parts of the setting. You know, there's a back and forth. You guys have done things to shape the setting, and then I look at that and say, okay, if the setting is like that, how did we get there? Yeah. And that works fine, because it takes some of the world-building load off of me. I've always felt, and I think we've expressed this <laughs> for a hundred episodes, everybody at the table contributes to world-building. It's not just the GM's job. Yes, the GM does the majority of it in most games, but the players build the world as well. And integrating oh, that into the setting is one of the big challenges for the GM. And that's where I think a, an understanding of history and a willingness to invite ways that history may not necessarily be a coherent narrative all the way through. I think that's when those become valuable. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, never hesitate to say, oh, yeah, all the records were lost when the library burned. Yeah, because that is something that happened in Alexandria in real history. And a lot of other libraries have burned too, sadly. Yep. 
Paper is flammable. Yeah, it turns out when you write on things that don't last very long, you lose information. At any rate, I think we've kind of beat this one to death. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) as is our want. (laughs) Yeah, but it's been a good discussion, I hope. Yeah. So I I do want to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us through 100 episodes and hopefully uh, at least 100 more. Well, given our topics document, I don't think we're going to run out of things to talk about anytime soon. so. So true. So true. Next episode is going to be the topic that Patreon backers voted on, which I'm excited about. It'll be playing supernatural or paranormal creatures, specifically as Christians. So look forward to that. Yep. If you want to follow us on social media, and I encourage you to do so, because we do, like I said, occasionally post stuff there, and we love interacting with listeners that way. We're saving the game on Facebook, Twitter, Google+. You can always email us as well. Just go to sdgcast.org and click the Contact Us link up at the top. And if you want to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash saving the game. All that money goes back into making the show better for you. So from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. Enjoy the new outro music. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution share-alike license. Our music is the Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.